Welcome, everybody, to another Look Again podcast. Today, we have the great privilege of welcoming Michael Carroll. Michael is a writer, coach, teacher, mentor, and mindfulness practitioner. Uh, he's here today to talk about mindfulness and how it was able to be applied in both life and work. Thanks for speaking to us today, Michael. It's a pleasure to have you on. Welcome. Yeah, it's an honor and a joy to be with you all. Ali, you forgot to add Ninja also. Yeah, ninja. Ninja. Yeah, no, ninja. And he also, also he's also a ninja. A ninja. I feel like that was the most important part of his bio was the ninja part. That's right. All right. So um, on the Look Again podcast, Michael, we talk a lot about mindfulness and contemplative practice. So how does mindfulness show up in your life? And we also ask people, like, what does your personal practice look like? Because a lot of times when people teach, they have to teach a certain thing or that's what they, people want to people learn. But their personal practice looks a lot different. So uh, right. what do you have to say about that? Well, just a little bit about myself. I'm, you know, I'm 60. What am I? Almost 67 years old. I guess. no, I'm 60. Almost 68 years old. So I've been practicing since 1975. So I've been practicing mindfulness for quite some time. The way I've been taught is in the Kagyu Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism. So the the style of the sitting meditation is what is generally referred to as formless meditation for Zen practitioners. If you would Shinkantazi style very simple approach to the practice. So, you know, I've been doing it a long time. I've done, I mean, to, to a great degree, you know, there are other disciplines I've been trained in, in, in my lineage, but then to a great degree, you know, that's just a, a basic practice. Done many solitary retreats, many long, just did another five day retreat recently, just came off of that. So, you know, extended sitting meditation is, is pr- very much part of the tradition as well as a daily practice you know, half hour in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's essentially what I've been doing my whole, well, most of my life, I guess, at this point. So when you say formless meditation, so like I know Atman, Andy, and I come from like a yogic tradition. Some of our listeners might have no experience meditating or come from different traditions. Can you describe what formless meditation is a little more? Yeah, you know, it, theoretically, technically, you can talk about meditation from the, I guess, from Persia East, so to speak. Technically, you can talk about meditation as two types. One is form-based meditation, which uh, a form-based meditation uses a a specific technique in order to achieve an objective. So you might use a mantra or a visualization or, or like in Tai Chi, you would use various body movements. And the objective would be to raise your sense of vitality and the power of one's physical presence or... You might do, uh, maybe familiar with your audience, you know, the practice of Tong Lin, where you actually visualize a particular movement of the breath in order to generate loving kindness. But there are, we could go into many traditions, and there are literally thousands of form-based disciplines that use a very specific technique in order to achieve a specific objective. The other type of meditation is what is referred to broadly as formless meditation. Formless meditation uses little or no technique at all and doesn't seek to achieve anything at all. And the formless meditation, mindfulness awareness meditation, though it uses some technique, is kind of falls generally within the formless style of meditation. And particularly in the Zen and Mahamudra and Ati tradition, the formless aspect of that discipline is is very much uh, worked with. So I guess 
to have a form is to have like a intention in your meditation and to be formless is to meditate without an intention, but to just do a practice, right? To some degree, uh, I think the issue here is in formless meditation, the, the type of effort that you're working with is not an effort of achieving anything. Okay. It's actually becoming familiar with the situation. It's not about accomplishing anything. It's, it's about becoming, uh, expressing qualities of the mind. That type of effort is uh, very real uh, and it, you, you work with it, but it's not a matter of uh, what we call the wisdom of non-achievement. You're not achieving anything. You're actually recognizing situations. Okay. And uh, where did you find the Tonglin? Where did you find this Buddhism meditation, this practice that you've, you know, fell in love with and been doing for a long time? In terms of Tonglin particularly or just generally Buddhism? In general, like where did you find the practice? Yeah, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, my parents were very kind to me. They let me go to college and study theology and philosophy. And, and when I was in college, I studied theology, philosophy, Eastern thought. And then when I left college, I moved to New York City and through a series of accidents, one of which was getting off at the wrong subway station, I met His Holiness Dujum Rinpoche, who's a Tibetan master. And uh, that was, I was a very young man. I think it was 76 maybe when I met His Holiness. And he was my first connection with an actual living Buddhist master and not reading texts and books and things. And then from there, I was encouraged to study with other teachers, most importantly, Chogyam Trumba Rinpoche, who's my, my root teacher. I've, uh, you know, went to Buddhist seminary, trained as a teacher, et cetera, et cetera. So I was from an early age very interested in these kinds of principles, and I was very fortunate to meet really good teachers. Nice. Awesome. Also, by the way, I graduated from Naropa University, so I have a contemplative degree in Buddhism and arts and music from the school Chogam Trumpam started. So yeah, yeah. lineage well, right there. You're a very fortunate man. It's a good school. Yeah. So when you said that you went off the wrong exit and that's how you bumped into how how that happened, can you explain yeah. that a little more? <laughs> yeah. I uh I needed a job. I was in New York. I moved to New York. I was, I was like 21. And I, I, all I had was a degree in theology and philosophy. My parents were like, what, what is this kid going to do? So I was going to go up to the Union Theological Seminary, which is at 125th and Broadway, just to maybe go and get my doctorate. I don't know. I was just going to go up there because it's, and I got off at 110th Street, which is Columbia University. So I got off, and I was like, wow, what's this place? This is kind of cool. And there was a sign there that said employment. I said, that's, that's an interesting thing, because that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> so in any case, I walked in, and they gave me a job in the library, which in turn, they had a Tibetan collection there, which I then went to visit. In turn, there were some translators there. Uh, and then I came upon a picture of his holiness and et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of the, the, and I went to visit him. It's a long story, which I won't go into now about when I met his holiness and spent time with him and he was very generous with me. Uh, it was his first visit to New York. So that's how it happened. I love stuff like that. I love how synchronicities work like that and how almost like the universe guided you 
to go to that library, to be employed there, to meet him. And I just think that stuff's so cool. Yeah, I call it the melody of circumstance. That yeah. There's a melody that if you know how to sing along with it, it brings you into a certain kind of coherence in, in life. If you know how to uh, respect it and be humble. you know. So would you say when you met your teacher, that's how you discovered your mindfulness practice? Was that like what kind of got you into, I mean, you were going to school to study theology and stuff like that, but like what really got you into having your own practice? You know, like what was that journey like for you? Well, you know, you, you couldn't really study with uh, Trumba Rinpoche or uh, Dujam Rinpoche or Kempu Kato Rinpoche or any of those great teachers unless you meditated. And it's that simple. I mean, it's kind of like if you go to a gym to work out and you go, I'm not really into working out, but I want to be part of the gym. It's like, it doesn't make any sense, you know? So, you know, in order to study with these, these men, one had to practice. And, you know, for me personally, a big part of the initial part of the practice was really exploring my own confusion, to be quite honest with you, is just dismantling my own panic and getting to know my fears uh, and, and sitting for long periods of time. I, in the very beginning, I would be sitting like three hours a day. Most of the time, I don't, I don't even think I ever came back to my breath. I mean, I was just sitting there freaking out. <laughs> but, you know, you gent and it, it's a gentle way of very gently dismantling one's panic and uh, in the beginning, for sure. And uh, that was pretty much the essence of, of my initial engagement with, with uh, you know, a lot of people nowadays, hey, man, you know, you should meditate. It's uh, stress-free. <laughs> not, my, not my experience meditation. You sit there going, this is boring, and my mind won't shut up, and it's freaked out, you know. So it took some time for me to sort of make friends with my mind. Many years, many, many years. <laughs> I love hearing it that way, too, because, you know, most people, when they talk about meditation, it's just like you're saying, like, oh, this is just going to solve all your answers, and you're going to live carefree. So I love the honesty of how it's like, Man, this can kick your ass sometimes because all oh, that stuff comes up. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, if anything, it, it teaches you how to be honest with yourself and to, and to make friends with why we're so hard on ourselves and we're so frightened of life. That is not an easy journey. That is not an easy journey. Yeah, like the, the dismantling of anxiety because it's almost like we constantly have anxiety and you don't realize you have it until you notice you have it, which is pretty much most of the time and you know and like sitting down is a really big confrontation of your anxiety yeah so I, I know with our practice me Andy and Ali's um our teacher first taught us like you know um stuff that we could do on the mat to kind of get our bodies stronger then he taught us like some breathing practices to kind of still our minds and jumped us into different meditations and we kind of ran with that and saw what it did for us mentally, physically, and emotionally. And we realized that uh, we wanted to teach as many people as we can this practice uh, through the Holistic Life Foundation. But he also taught us, like like we were talking about earlier, like mudras and matras, and, you know, told us that they were formulas to kind of help you achieve whatever the mantra or mudra kind of said that it was going to do for you. Um, and we can't really do that with uh, the Holistic Life Foundation. 
and you know we we even though we know how potent these practices are it's just something that we have to keep to ourselves and in our own personal practice yeah now with uh your work is in mindfulness and you know you do consulting with various companies uh is there a point where you need to separate your mindfulness practice from the work you do or uh maybe a moment where you need to merge the two together and then you know a follow-up how do you manage your practice and the work you do ultimately. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things about how I was trained is that the, the issue of sitting on the cushion in and of itself is not the objective. The issue is, is what happens off the cushion is quality of the mind as you make friends with your mind. What happens when you get off the cushion and raise a family or go to work or be a neighbor, or work with conflicts, or fall in love, or fall out of love. How does one engage that from the point of view of sanity? And how does one offer sanity to others? So that, that's the issue. And Prabhu Rinpoche, my teacher, was very, very explicit about the fact that we're not in this practice in order to sort of, you know, develop refined states of mind for ourselves so that we could experience, you know, not that that's not a bad thing. The point he was making with us is there's a way to be in the world that inspires the best in others, that inspires dignity and joy and wisdom. And, and, and uh, that's what we were trained to do. And for me, and Rinpoche was into the, you know, was very clear about this. For me, where do we spend our time? We spend our time at work. Most people go to work thinking that it's a tax they have to pay so they can get back to their jobs. When in fact, if you meditate, you actually meditate and you go to work, you're actually at work. But you know, you're awake at work, you're at work. So how do you inspire the best in others? How do you create a dignified world? And if you actually see work carefully, you see that work is a spiritual path because that's how we contribute to the world. Most people go to work, most of us go to work because, well, we need to, you know, we need to pay the bills. We need, you know, we, we're looking for security. We're looking for identity. We're looking for, and we get frustrated because the work can't offer that. Nobody offers that. We always feel insecure. It doesn't give us the identity because work isn't built to do that. Work is built to give us an opportunity to contribute to our world. And if we contribute to our world with kindness and dignity and sanity that comes from the meditation, you can inspire the best in the world. And uh, that's, that's essentially why we practice, isn't so that we can have like refined experiences in the awakened state, man. You know, not that that's bad. It's more about how you express that in the world so that, that 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 the world comes to its fullest measure, so to speak. <laughs> Michael, so so following up on your question, so say hypothetically speaking, you knew someone that was like um, that meditated every day, right? Every day for a long time, got to do the work that they loved. You know, like they got to share these practices with other people in Baltimore and around the world, and um, you know, just dealing with people. Sometimes your mindfulness practice just goes out the fucking window. You know what I mean? Like it's just like you know, like. Sure. You, you wish like your goal, like your goal is to carry your practice off of your mat or off of your chair, off of your cushion and into work, but just dealing with people 
Um, it just goes out the window. And I'm sure the hypothetical person myself that I'm talking about isn't the only one that that happens to, you know what I mean? So what tips do you have for people that do have a meditation practice? They have a, they have a, a practice that they're strong and they're fortified in, but then, you know, like at points, like during the day when they're at work, particularly even if they're doing something that they love, it just goes out the window and they just kind of get caught yeah. up in angry situations where they might get angry. Just, they just get caught up yeah. in situations, whatever they may be. Of course, of course. Yeah. See, Ali, part of, part of the issue is, is we assume that if we master mindfulness, we're going to be living a life, we're going to conduct ourselves immaculately. And, and if we're not conducting ourselves immaculately, it's because we suck at mindfulness. And we, you know, blah, 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 blah. That, no, 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 that, that's not the issue. The issue is by doing the practice over time, we increasingly become wiser in how we engage our world. Making mistakes is part of the territory. I mean, it's just part of the territory. It's just it. It's just the way it works. We make mistakes. No problem. But the issue is, is as we practice and we rub up against the realities of our lives, we begin to notice that there's a different way to engage the world, not from the point of view of panic or trying to secure ourselves, but from a more playful and, and, and sort of uh, how would you say, inspiring view. So I'll give you an example. One of the important things in business is to not uh, engage issues uh, from a biased point of view. You come with a preconceived point of view, you're seeing the situation through your version, and you're actually not dealing with the circumstances, you're dealing with your storyline. And in, in business, that's a big problem, particularly in personnel, because... You know, you know, we all know, Ali, you're a good guy, but but Atman, it's not cool, man. We know that. He's a piece of crap. I'm glad you identified yeah. that, Michael. Oh, Thank you. you. See, see what I'm saying? He understands the brother dynamic. To all our listeners out there, today is opposite day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Actually, today's 420, but, you know. So we, we got that down, right? So, you know, Atman sucks. Ali's great, right? So now at work, you know, I'm happy with Ali, but when Amon comes around, dude, what the hell? That little storyline is my version of reality. It has relatively little to do with Atman or you. I'm caught inside a biased, fixed mindset that's distorting the possibilities of having an authentic relationship with, with either of you. Both of you are a much larger, bigger proposition than my little story. Well, when you do the meditation, you increasingly dissolve a fixed mindset in how you relate with people. You know, sometimes Admin has a bad day. He's a cranky pants. So, but some, you know, some days are beautiful. Some days you're a cranky pants. So you, you begin to have a much more agile relationship with your world rather than projecting your version on it. And that's just one aspect. There are so many aspects that come out of the meditation that you can bring to your everyday life that begins to create sanity in the world. Rather than me sitting around, you know, being pissed off at Ottman because one day, you know, because he ate my lunch one day. Take my lunch. I'm okay with you. You know what I'm saying? Does it make sense what I'm saying? You know, it makes total sense. Yeah. And the, this this ability to actually engage the world from an open, authentic place 
is what is the natural outcome of the practice. And when you bring it to the workplace, uh, it's very, uh, how would you say, skillful? And it tends to inspire the best in others. So we have like this focus on practice and mindfulness conversation going on. And you clearly told us when you found out about meditation and Buddhism and it kind of like turned you on and it started like a path for you and, you know, your parents allowed you to do it. And, you know, you kind of like you had this life of meditating and mindfulness and meditation before you actually brought it to a more like organizational setting, a work setting and like helping executives, coaching people, teaching people. When did that transition happen where you were thinking about, I want to take this thing that I know and I want to bring it to my work, you know, because you made it into more of a relationship and now it's into like a career, like a path for you. So how did that happen? When did that happen? And what was that like for you? Well, it's, a, it's a good story. <laughs> I like telling this story. So I got invited to go and study at seminary. And uh, it was, you know, you had to apply, you had to study and complete certain practices and all this. And I was like, I got accepted, man. And, kept, and that, you know, studying with Trumbo Rinpoche personally was a big deal. So I was like accepted. You know, I left my my job. I left my apartment. I, my girlfriend was having boyfriends. You know, I'm like, I raised Miriam, giving up everything to go to the seminary. But like, you know, I'm on my way to hang out with you know a tantric master. By the time I'm done, I'm gonna be you know serious dude, seriously accomplished tantric dude. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So. I go through the seminary. It's a three-month thing. Lots of practice, lots of study, all that kind of stuff. And it's the end of this. And I, I, I'm trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do next? Maybe I'll, I'll grow my hair like like Otland's, you know, with a little dreadlock, live in a cave, you know. Maybe go be a monk or maybe my teacher, Trumbo Rinpoche, because he'll see how advanced I am. He'll send me to study with some great lama in Nepal, you know, so... I figure I'll go and ask Trumbo Rinpoche what to do. So I get an interview with him, and I come in, and I sit down, and I'm like, you know, giving up everything. I'm on board. I'm meditating. I'm studying. I'm ready for the next phase. I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm in. What do I do next? So he just looks over his glasses, and he says, go get a job. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, Okay, wait a minute. This guy, he was probably misinterpreted. He probably thinks I'm someone else. You know, he wouldn't send somebody who's as accomplished as me to go get a job. He wouldn't throw me out in the cold. So I start explaining to him, no, no, no. You see, blah, 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 woof, woof, blah, blah, woof, woof. And then he just goes, no, you can do it. Give it a try. So, you know, you're asking, David, how did I start this? I was thrown out. That's how I started this thing. Thrown out in the cold. So what was your first job, and how did the meditation apply to that position? Well, I think, I think this is the important lesson here. Is At the time, obviously, I was disappointed. But the lesson, which is a profound one, is a lot of my views on what was spiritual and what was uh, sacred was really my naivete. And that what really is sacred is your ordinary life. Mm. And, and how can you actually see that? That being human, 
having a job, raising a family, cooking a meal, mowing the lawn, kissing someone you love, all of that. That's what's sacred. What is the most obvious is the most profound. And that's what Prabhupada was pointing me in the direction of. So, you know, I got worked on Wall Street and held some pretty senior executive jobs with companies like Disney and Simon Schuster, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. You know, the credentials are irrelevant. People were very kind to me there. They were very patient with me because I was a knucklehead, man. I made tons of mistakes. I got an email from a woman who worked for me. I think it was a name Weber or something. She goes, I get an email. goes, I was in the bookstore and I saw this book, Awake at Work, by a guy named Michael Carroll. I opened it up and it was you. I can't believe it. You were a knucklehead. What do you mean, Awake at Work? You know? So I emailed her back and said, I really apologize. I'm sorry if I was tough on you. I didn't mean to. But it wasn't that bad. I mean, come on, you know? So, so my point is that working in corporate settings was, was a path, was a journey that, where I needed to learn to be humble and kind and tough, clear, these kinds of things. Beautiful. Nice. Thank you. So speaking of working in the corporate realm, um, what's the most drastic or like beautiful change you've seen in a corporate environment that you've worked in? You know what I mean? Something where you, you walked in, it was like the baby, like, I don't know, it could have been, it could have been really tense. Could have been a total shit show. And then you worked, you walked in, you worked with everyone. And it was just like this beautiful change that you saw something that was just like stuck with you. Because of the consulting that we were doing or just because of something they were doing? No, definitely because of the consulting you were doing. And maybe a shift that you saw in them where it was just like having a practice or, or learning to be aware of how you interact with yourself and other people can be very powerful sure. in any environment, particularly a work environment. But is there anything that you, you saw yeah, that really no, stuck no, with yeah. you? I hear you. Thank you for the question. Well, yeah, I'll just give one one kind of story, so to speak. Because there, there are many, you know, that, that people are good. You know what I mean? You know, I get to work with a lot of scientists. And these men and women, they really care about the world and trying to help others with diseases and things like that. It's quite remarkable. I work with a lot of data scientists as well, really smart women and men. In any case, I'll give you one example. I won't name the company, but it's a very, very well-known big company. And I had the assignment to work with the the head of uh, research and development in this organization. And this particular person was probably smarter than everybody in the room times five. And it, that's why he got the job. This particular person was just brilliant scientist, PhD, MD kind of thing. And, uh, the problem was, and why I guess they hired me, I guess they did hire me, is that his presence was inadvertently creating an atmosphere of fear. Where people were afraid to express their points of view. And often they had to dress up their behavior to give the impression that they knew more. It had created an entire scientific atmosphere of ritual where everyone wanted to make sure that they were getting proper recognition and for their talents. And, and a lot of it flowed from this individual's really powerful intellect. So if you brought up a point about a per particular clinical study, you can be sure that he'd asked 
the five critical questions very quickly that you needed to answer or statistical modeling you were using, and you better have the right answer. So that level of panic or fear in the atmosphere was creating a culture where people weren't candid. They weren't open. In any case, make a long story short, this particular scientist in working, in working together began to work with the practice. Because he was so smart, he quickly realized, oh my God, I'm buying my own story. This is ridiculous. It's so much easier listening than trying to wait in ambush. And he just started shifting his style very quickly and creating an atmosphere that was a little surprising to people, frankly, and opening, creating a more open and innovative atmosphere where people could speak their minds. Conflict was not seen as a dangerous, but more welcome. There was a, you know, it didn't happen overnight, obviously. You just don't switch things overnight. But it was pretty obvious that this individual learned quite quickly that his ability to promote an atmosphere of openness and candor and authenticity versus being the smartest guy in the room was a, a preferred way of, of leading a, a top-notch scientific culture. So th that would be just one example of, of the kinds of successes one would hope to have in doing the kind of work that I do. Interesting. It's one thing to think about, like there's knowledgeable, you know, knowledge and knowing things, but then there's just like emotional intelligence, being intelligent with how you show up in a bubble of people or noticing people if they feel comfortable around you to say things. And I always kind of like the fact that we can dialogue in a way where it's healthy to disagree, but it's not healthy to fight about it. It's healthy to try to explain your point of view because if people can't understand you, then you have to use words and meaning. And if we can't do that, then it's just like we tend to shut things off, shut people out. So we have to learn how to disagree and just, you know, kind of just say what is. Yeah, and I, I think you're spot on there, David. And it, it requires a lot of skill to be socially intelligent and emotionally intelligent. I always say in working with folks, the easy part is mastering the technical requirements of your job. That's the easy part. The hard part is being skillful in a complex environment. And, you know, I'm, I do a lot of work with uh, data scientists. And not to distant past, data scientists were expected to come into the various settings and impart information to decision makers, right? particularly in clinical research settings, that, that's pretty much what they were expected to do. Nowadays, the methodologies around uh, data analytics and things like that and predictive analytics is so sophisticated that the decision makers, if you just impart the information to them, they're like, what? They expect data scientists to exhibit a whole range of influencing skills that they wouldn't normally have been expected to have delivered on. You know, being able to listen effectively, present data in a way that's digestible, uh, influence decisions, present options in ways that uh, provoke insightful conversation, uh, deal with conflicts skillfully to bring about joint ownership of a resolved, uh, of a shared solution. These are all very sophisticated social intelligence skills that a lot of data scientists either weren't trained in or didn't know needed to be important. 
Well, believe it or not, uh, the mindfulness meditation develops those skills. That's very natural. That's what mindfulness trains us in this natural ability to listen, to empathize accurately, to be self-aware, to self-regulate, to resonate with diverse points of view. That is meditation trains us. That it doesn't train you to accomplish that. It gets us out of the way so that those natural talents can unfold. So that's a lot of the reason why, and I don't teach meditation to every executive I work with, for God's sakes, that would be inflicting meditation on people. But many, many executives enjoy doing the practice for that reason, that it unleashes natural social intelligence skills. Yeah, here, here. You know, Michael, you said earlier, you know, you've been practicing since like 75. So that's you know, almost 50 years of experience that you have doing this stuff, right? And um, I'm wondering, was there ever like a profound moment or experience that happened in all these years of you practicing that you, like a story or a situation, just anything, one of those like, aha, like, wow, moments that you've experienced, you know what I mean? You know, practicing so long, I'm sure there's got to be something, something well, you know, part of the discipline in the, my lineage is disowning all the ahas. Because as soon as you try to hold on to them, you distort them into a storyline that gives you the false impression that you're achieving something. So trying to sort of, hey, man, you know what happened to me one time? I had a flash of enlightenment that, you know, sort of lingered on for 27 days, you know? <laughs> I haven't been same since, man. I'm just riding that wave, man. Aha. It, my feet don't even touch the ground, man. I, 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 I'm just floating. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say this. I'll, I'll give you one, which is very dear to my heart. I, I, I don't want to say too much uh, about it, but it was early on in my practice, and it was because of my teachers. Is being able to gaze upon another human being is one of the, if is the rarest experience there is. It is so precious. Gaze upon another human being. Just to literally, everyone goes, you know, I want to have a really rare experience. I want to have a, a sublime experience. So I'll go down to the Bahamas and look at fish under the water. Yeah. Which is wonderful, by the way. Don't get me wrong. But if you take the context of infinite space and the rarity of the situation to see another human being, and you literally, this isn't just like a nice poetic phrase. If you see another human being really, really clearly, it is the rarest, most precious experience in the universe. It's humbling. And those types of insights have come through the meditation and they linger with me. They linger with me. That's powerful, man. One more thing that just popped in my head was, would you have chosen, or if you had a chance to go back, right, in time, and when your teacher was like, go get a job, would you have liked him to say, you are the Jedi master here and I have... <laughs> This other course for you, and so, like, would would you have preferred that if you could if you could pick it and go back? Would you prefer, or or do you think? And, I, and I'm assuming, of course, you think that this is the path you were supposed to take. You know what I mean? But you know, have you ever like thought back, like, man, why didn't he? 
why me? Make me do something else. Yeah. Well, if he had said to me, I want you to be a ninja master. Now that, that would have been cool. You'd that, be like, I, I've already done that. I've already mastered that. <laughs> I accept I'm your challenge. I'm on the ninja path. You know, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> ninja path. I have this ninja teacher you must learn from in Japan. Must go now. Be swift. There was a woman in New York who practiced uh, at the place where I meditated. And she studied with a ninja master in New York. And the way, and she kept a lot of it to herself, but she told me what they would do is you'd have to show up at these places where he told you to show up. And there were abandoned warehouses in like Brooklyn and various places. And they would do their katas there and he would train, but each place was different. And it was all street work. It was pretty cool. I mean, I was like, I was terrified. I wouldn't go. I wasn't allowed to go. But she was saying, yeah, there's only a handful of people in New York who did the training with this ninja trainer. Anyway, back to your question, though. <laughs> you know, the, I think many years from now, the people will be looking back at how did Tantra, Tantra Buddhism particularly, come to the West. One would think that Tantra would be a monastic issue, possibly, or maybe some of the Mahasiddha disciplines, cave retreating kind of things, which is all good, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. You know, I practice in seclusion myself on occasion. But what I think future generations will find is that Tantric Buddhism in, in modern times is very much about how to agilely mingle and blend with modern society that that's what tantric skill is about, is how does one blend with these tremendously, brilliantly intelligent and insane dynamics of modern society in a way that elevates the practitioner and those that she or he come in contact with. And I think that's a very advanced understanding of these teachings of my teacher very much understood that. So I'm, I count myself fortunate that I wasn't sent to a cave. <laughs> I might have longer hair and looking maybe skinnier, that's for sure. But I, <laughs> I, I don't think I would be as helpful or maybe happy as I am. <laughs> so for some of our listeners that may not, may be interested in what you were saying about tantric Buddhism and, and how it helps you live your life, like do you have any good books that you can recommend to any of our listeners? Well, the the book that everyone is familiar with, you know, well, not everyone, but many people are familiar with, is a, a classic cutting through spiritual materialism that really sort of defines many of the dynamics of how we would misunderstand the spiritual path and what how could we authentically engage a spiritual path. But you know, there's a lot of good stuff out there. You know, read David Nickturn, good friend of mine. Uh, you know, uh, Judy Leaf from Arimbache's materials. Uh, depending upon your own proclivity, there's many, many good teachers out there. And I don't flog my books, by the way. My publisher gets upset, you know. Hey, you ought to buy, you can buy the whole package. It's kind of like a Mary Kay thing, you know. <laughs> Tell the listeners what your book is. Why not? This is what, you know. Let them know. Well, no, I've just written books on literally how do you apply these principles uh, to work settings, workplace, conflict, that kind of stuff. You know, you can just look up my name, Michael Carroll, Wake at Work or whatever, Mindful Leader, that kind of thing. 
but there's many really good teachers out there that people should go to. And I think the essence of it is to really, first and foremost, dismantle one's own confusion about oneself, which is a gentle act, and then open to the world and maybe glimpse the fact that this is a much more profound situation than we might have noticed and become familiar with that. <laughs> so, you know, I know one thing that Andy always says is that, like, you know, we should be called human doings instead of human beings because we're always doing stuff, like, and never just being. Yeah. Um, I know when we first started out, me, Ali, and Andy were volunteering uh, our time with uh, our nonprofit. Then to kind of keep the lights on, we had to get weekend jobs at a mental illness facility. And, you know, we had no time for ourselves. You know, as time progressed, uh, we had some great mentors and they kind of taught us about like the balance in life, balancing, you know, uh, carving out time for yourself, your personal practice, putting smiles in your face uh, with just like, you know, we love going camping and going hiking and, you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So if you were to create a um, ideal balance between work, life, mindfulness practice and self-discovery to manage one life, what would that kind of look like? Or yeah. and, and I know it might be hard for some people if you're not like an executive of a company and, you know, you are working a nine to five just because, you know, sometimes people live one long day and, you know, that Saturday they're recharging their energy for the, from, from that week. And then that Sunday they're cleaning their house up, getting ready back for that Monday. So, you know, is there an ideal way to kind of set up a more balanced life? Well, you know, I mean, I could get into discussing how to arrange one's life in a way that, that, that actually provokes sanity, right? There's many dynamics involved with that, and in, particularly for householders, householder approach. But, you know, that's so personal, so intimate, you know. But I, I would suggest the, the slogan, uh, BC do, BC do. And the, the first element of that is what you were just saying there, Alvin, is how to be, how to be. That's the key. That's why the meditation is key. So that when you go into the shower and you turn the water on, you're actually getting wet. How to be. Now, once you develop how to be, the next question is, is what do you see? What do you see? You see Atman, the person who has cranky pants? Or do you actually see Atman? When you actually see Atman, you will bow. Do you see a tree? Do you see the sky? Do you see that you have toes? <laughs> because if you actually see that you have toes, it's remarkable. And once you be and you see, then you do. Then you do. You go to work. You raise a family. You mow the lawn. You water the flowers. You pet your cat. But if you're running after do, 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 and you haven't be, and you didn't be, and you didn't see, the likelihood is you're blind and you're provoking calamity. So BC do. Thank you for that, Michael. That was beautiful, man. Have you ever worked with a company that was like totally obstinate and was like, man, fuck this mindfulness. Like we're not, we're the way we're doing things is perfect. Cause I mean, you know, like we work with students who are sometimes like, I'm not doing this. And you got to figure out a way to work through it. Like if you worked, walked into a company and they're like, we're, we're killing it already. We don't need you. We don't need to calm down. First off, 
I never come into a company trying to inflict meditation on anybody. Man. That's not who I am. <laughs> if you don't want to meditate, God bless, don't meditate. Live your life. Everybody's got stuff to do. I got stuff to do too. I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. So I don't, I mean, in a certain sense, I don't care. I don't have a dog in your fight. It's your world, not my world. On the other hand, I think you've heard me tell this story before. I've, I've told it a few times in public settings. I personally love coming into circumstances where all the business people are skeptical. And, you know, I've been lecturing in business settings for a long time, with all due respect to everybody, long before mindfulness was popular, frankly. The one story I like telling that captures this issue that you're bringing up, Ali, the, the people who are resistant, is one time I was invited by this, this executive, who uh, CEO of his own company who had been on a retreat with me, to come to his company and teach his executive team to be the meditators. So, you know, we set it up. I go to his place. He's in New Jersey. Beautiful business. The guy built it himself. 450 employees, financial business, uh, insurance products. Built it himself. Beautiful thing. So I get there to his uh, office. We sit down in the morning, have a little cup of coffee. He goes, all right, I want to come on in. I want to introduce you to my team. I said, okay. I come in and I walk into his his boardroom and there's eight people sitting around his his office. Your audience can't see this, but their faces are like, oh, it's going to happen now. So I walk in and, and uh, the, the executive goes, I, I was on a retreat with Michael Carroll, a mindful leader retreat. I want us all to be mindful leaders. Michael, take it away. And I'm like, oh, my God, geez. These three, I, I'm going to inflict meditation on these Poor people. And it's 9.30 in the morning on Monday. It's like, this is like, so, you know, I start, you know, start talking a little bit. And your audience can't see this, but the, the, the CFO is sitting at the table and he keeps glancing at his watch. He's glancing at his watch. You know, there's this little tone of like looking at his watch. And about half hour in, the, the CFO goes, excuse me for a second, excuse me. Is there a bottom line here? Is there like a bottom line to this mindfulness, mindful leader thing? And I said, ah, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, there is a bottom line. And how about, rather than me telling you what the bottom line is, how about if I show you? And everybody in the room was like, oh, cool. So I said, okay, here you go. And I just sat there for about a minute. <laughs> I said, no. I said, so how was that? How was that? And one, one, one of the men in the, one of the guys in the room said, uh, I was getting really anxious, getting very anxious, very nervous. And here's the punchline. Another guy said, uh, I thought your uh, presentation was starting to unravel. <laughs> They said, well, you guys asked for the bottom line, right? So let me, let, me get, let me point something out here. That was just 60 seconds of psychological space. That's all it was. Very simple. And what happened? You panicked. You panicked. You're nervous, very anxious. Now, for mindful leaders, that's of great interest of great interest. 
Because one of the fundamental things, one of the bottom lines to mindful leadership is can you be comfortable in your own skin? Real simple. We're talking fundamental here. Can you be comfortable in your own skin? Just sitting here. That's all we were doing, by the way, just sitting here. So you want to know the bottom line? Can we be confident in our own skin just sitting here? So Ollie, you know, when I have skeptics in the room, I love skeptics. I love skeptics. <laughs> I like that story. That's a really good one. So we got one more question for you. And I feel like it ties in pretty well with what you just finished saying, but have you ever found it hard to get businesses and companies wrangled up in the idea and practice of mindfulness when you are invited to, you know, into their workspace to help them with slowing down, like less movement and less working? But when initially business is all about goal focuses, orientation on workflow, you know, it, it in some sense, like I can see how mindfulness helps businesses, but I can also see how mindfulness can allow people to feel like it's not helping because it's like slowing down, going within and business is like, yo, you, you need to ship that. You need to move that over there. Like, what does it take for people to understand that like slowing down is actually moving forward? Well, this is, I think this is a really good question that end on. I'm glad that you brought this up. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I, I came to business as a Buddhist. I didn't come to Buddhism as a business person. I didn't, I didn't come to meditation as a business person. Most people who come to the practice as business people are like, well, how's this going to make me more productive? How's this going to make uh, me more money? How's this going to make me more efficient? Will it stabilize my attention and my listening span so that I can become blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's not about any of that at all. And when I go into a work setting, I'm not here to inflict meditation on anybody. What I'm here to do is to help people solve problems in a sane way. And if along the way it becomes helpful for them to learn to meditate, God bless. If not, that's fine too. The issue is, is, can we help? Can we lend a hand? So coming in and saying, I got a solution for you called mindfulness meditation is really actually quite insulting. Because we never took the time to find out that you have a problem in your call center where people feel disrespected. Let's find out what they're feeling. Let's, let's go with talk to the people in the call center. Find out what's going on here. What, what, what's, what's the issue with the, the work environment where they feel disrespected? Let's, let's listen to people. Instead of, all right, if everyone in the call center would just learn to do this discipline and meditate and do my program, the Mike Carroll meditation program, of which I'm going to be paid a certain amount of money and write a book about it and make sure I get more lecture gigs and blah, 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 blah. Nah. More important is that Many of the people in the call center have children at home and they're having a difficult time balancing their lives in terms of those kinds of things. Some of them aren't trained well. Maybe some of them have problems with alcohol. Let's try to find out what the problem is. Lend a hand here. 
rather than inflict meditation on people. I don't know if that answered your question, David, but you know, if, if people begin to realize that training their mind is helpful, I'm here to help, but I'm not here to inflict that on them. Cause you know, when we think about business, we think of a like really fast pace, get shit done, like cross that off to the do list. But you know, when businesses are bringing in uh, mindfulness practitioners to help them with their workflow, it's not less, I really liked how you said it. It's like, you're not just trying to be more productive. You're trying to figure out like what is going on, you know? And sometimes what is going on isn't business related. It might be at home related or mentally related. It could be anything. Yeah, but it does affect how you show up to work. And sometimes work affects how you show up to life. So I'm really liking this like holistic approach that you're, you're doing. It's not like, it's not this, it's not that. It's kind of like, what is it? Let's figure it out. <laughs> and by the way, that curiosity is an expression of the practice that you're authentically curious about the other person's experience, not inflicting your solution on them. Yeah. Beautiful. So beautiful. Michael, man, thanks so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. this is an awesome interview, man. It was great to catch up with you and talk. Yeah, I was you guys come and visit me. I don't want to leave now. Can I come with you guys? <laughs> come on down. Anytime. You can come hang with Cranky Pants happen anytime you want. <laughs> the crankster. The crankster. <laughs> I'm at Boulder. You can you can come down here and we'll go visit Naropa. I used to work there for 10 years, so I'm pretty familiar yeah, with well, them. I'm thinking of coming out from uh, Albuquerque up to Fort Collins, drive along there. So nice. if I'm not there, David, I'll look look you up. Yeah, hit but me up. You're all invited to come up. I'll make you lunch. I know we're not too far away. So I hope I hope to see your faces again. It's really an honor and a joy to see you all again. So thank you for having me. Appreciate your time, Michael. Yeah, yeah appreciate thank you so, so much, man. Peace love you, love, buddy. Man. Yeah, peace. Peace, y'all. Love to your fam, too. Thank you for listening to Look Again Podcasts. Please feel free to share this content with your friends and community. Also, please consider donating to our Patreon page. You can find us at patreon.com and search for Look Again Podcast. Anything helps and we really appreciate your visit. Thank you so much.